0: Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the opioid epidemic in rural Minnesota, an update on chronic wasting disease, and sports writer Patrick Borzi is out with a new book that will likely have Minnesota sports fans cheering. But first... We're now just a little over a week to the election and campaigning has reached a fever pitch. Bill Werner is here to give us a rundown.
1: Scott, the state went into the final two weeks of the campaign with the latest Minnesota polls showing a tight six-point spread in both the governor's contest and- and in the race for the U.S. Senate seat formerly held by Al Franken.
2: It may be that these races are tighter even than the polls suggest.
1: Carleton College analyst Stephen Shearer notes both polls undersampled voters in greater Minnesota, which could mean the Republican candidate's actual numbers are better than the survey suggests. In the Senate race, Democrat Tina Smith led Republican Karen Housley 47 to 41 percent. Ten percent are undecided, but a third of those did not recognize Housley's name. In the governor's contest, Democrat Tim Walls had 45 percent to Republican Jeff Johnson's 39 percent. But while Johnson's number is up three points from September, Walls' support was unchanged. Johnson amped up his campaign, warning Minnesotans will have long waits for health care under a single-payer system that Democratic rival Walls has said he will phase in. And Johnson brought in a former physician from Thunder Bay Hospital to the Minnesota Capitol to back him up. Dr. Lee Carisco says when he left... 40% of Thunder Bay residents had no access to primary care. Plus...
3: Our wait time for an elective CT scan was seven months long. For an MRI, it was 13 months.
1: Minnesotans who are used to the best care in the world will not tolerate waiting over a year for an MRI, said Johnson. Meanwhile, Walls pointed to big differences between himself and Johnson on abortion, birth control, and other
3: women's health issues. I trust women to make their own health care decisions. I don't think it's your elected officials' responsibility uh, to dictate uh, how people are doing that in their own lives.
1: Walls also fired a volley at Johnson, who said about a sales tax increase that Duluth voters approved for street repairs that We are so overtaxed in this state right now.
3: The lack of respect for 77% of the voters who chose to improve their community is stunning to me.
1: Wall says about Johnson, who responds if Duluth residents choose to increase their taxes, state law allows
3: it. I'm a local control guy, but I will
1: continue to say that taxes are too high in the state of Minnesota, and Tim and I just
2: fundamentally disagree on that. He thinks they need to go up.
1: Walls gave Republicans campaign fodder when he switched his stance twice in one day on whether he supports a $15 minimum wage. Walls' website said he does. But Wednesday morning, Walls told reporters he is not ready to say what minimum wage number he would back.
3: That kind of short-circuits the way that, that I build coalitions. We have not had that general conversation yet. We have not built it together. What I do know is, is that we need to have it.
1: But by Wednesday afternoon, Walls tweeted, quote, I support a $15 minimum wage. I voted for a $15 minimum wage in Congress and would be proud to sign it into law if it came to my desk as governor. Republican rival Johnson says Walls is making Minnesotans dizzy with flip-flopping.
3: He kind of
2: gives different answers depending upon who he's talking to. And so this is the same as guns and single-payer health care and Lyme 3 and tax increases.
1: Johnson says he does not support a $15 minimum wage because, quote, it hurts the people that we claim we want to help and is a killer for the smallest businesses. Minnesota's already contentious race for state attorney general became even more heated this week when the latest Minnesota poll showed Democrat Keith Ellison now trailing Republican rival Doug Wardlow by 7 points when just last month he was ahead by 5 Hamlin University professor David Schultz says domestic abuse allegations appear to have some Democrats undecided about Ellison. I think it's
2: less likely that we would see somebody voting um, who normally votes Democrat that would flip over to Wardlow. I think the bigger concern is whether or not somebody might choose to abstain from voting in the attorney
1: general's race. Allison went on the offensive, pledging to continue current Attorney General Lori Swanson's lawsuits against major drug manufacturers while pointing out Republican rival Wardlow will not say what he will do. As for the domestic abuse allegations, Allison says he has been very clear that it did not happen and has answered every question.
3: Somebody's going to be the attorney general 15 days from now. And is that person going to help you with affordable drug prices, or are they not? That's the
1: issue. Wardlow fired back Minnesotans are disturbed that, quote, Keith Ellison proudly stands with cop killers, wants open borders, and has been accused of abusing multiple women. Democrats tried another tag as they continued hammering Wardlow. State DFL Party Chairman Ken Martin said campaign finance records show the Republican Attorney General candidate received over $24,000 from the owners and operators of Globe University and Minnesota School of Business, which in 2017 were banned from operating in the state after the state of Minnesota sued, alleging the colleges issued thousands of illegal high-interest loans to students. Minnesota DFL Chair Martin says contributions to Wardlow's campaign.
3: It's because they do want to get back into this state and ultimately they want to, for lack of a better word, buy off the next attorney general.
1: Wardlow's campaign responded he will return the donations, but also said top Democrats should rebuke the actions of their endorsed candidate Ellison. They point to Ellison speaking in a fundraiser in 2000 for Sarah Jane Olson, who later admitted putting pipe bombs under police cars during the 1960s. Well, one day after that campaign contribution news conference, Allison was back at the Capitol saying a case President Trump wants the Supreme Court to rule on, whether a funeral home can fire a worker because they're transgender. That case was originally argued by Republican Attorney General Candidate Wardlow on behalf of an anti-lesbian gay group. Allison says...
4: I believe in liberty and justice for all. I believe in equality for all people. I believe in respect and dignity for all people. He clearly does not.
1: Spokesman Corey Wood responds Wardlow has said multiple times that the Attorney General's role is to protect and defend the rights of every Minnesotan. Regardless of sex,
4: sexual orientation, race, uh, creed, he will stand and protect the rights of every single Minnesotan.
1: Both campaign strategies right through Election Day appear to be clear. Wardlow will continue hammering Allison as uncertainty remains surrounding the sex abuse allegations by Ellison's former girlfriend. Allison will continue bringing up
0: other issues, trying to paint Wardlow as a right-wing extremist. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return after this.
5: Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's WE CAN or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy, we are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
0: Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. We've explored many facets of the opioid crisis in Minnesota over the course of the last several months. Today we're looking at the impact the epidemic is having on rural Minnesota. I chatted with Ruth Merrick, director of the Minnesota Farm Bureau Foundation, about the effects of opioids on farm country.
6: Rural America is being impacted. Uh, we have actually even come up to the levels and surpassed the impacts that are happening in our urban areas. So that's a concern for the Minnesota Farm Bureau. So we feel that it's really important to get out and talk about the issue, find out what's going on from a a legislative standpoint, from uh, the kind of what's happening with health officials. Everybody's having the conversation within their own departments and their own areas, but we feel that it needs to be a bigger conversation with more players in the community. So that's really what was driving this.
0: Tell me, Ruth, what do we know about why those numbers are, are increasing and in some cases surpassing in rural areas what's happening in urban areas?
6: Well, and, and now remember we're talking about opiates. So, you know, there's lots of different drugs and uh, drugs that are being abused out there. When we talk specifically talk about opiates, um, some of the reason is, is that, you know, farmers will get injured and... Um, the prescriber oftentimes has prescribed more than the needed amount, and that dependency on that drug happens you know, quickly. So rather than um, take time to go in for physical therapy or take time um, to really heal from an injury, what, what happens is they just pop another pill, and then eventually that dependency happens. So think of a farmer you know, not often does he, you know, he wants to leave that farm, you know, that, that crop needs to be harvested or that silage needs to be done in this amount of time. I got this to do, this to do. I don't have time to heal my body or to go into that physical therapy. I'm just going to take this pill. Then the dependency happens. And oftentimes it's a, it's a hidden problem. There's not resources available to the, the individual to um, take care of his, his dependency. We don't have the treatment facilities in our rural areas. Oftentimes they have to drive a long ways to um, find a treatment facility or even just get medical help. And so we think that those are some of the reasons that this is happening. We're not exactly sure, and that's why these conversations need to be happening. Um, The American Farm Bureau did a survey with Morning Consult, and we found out that through that, and this was a, a national survey that specifically targeted farmers and ranchers across the United States is that 45% of farmers have been directly impacted by the opiate crisis. And that's a staggering statistic. 74% of farmers and farm workers, um, they've been directly impacted by the opiate epidemic. So that's three in four farmers. So we know that we need to be doing work in our rural communities, um, the other statistic that just really jumped out at me was that three in four farmers say it's easy to access large amounts of opiates um, without a prescription. What that's telling me is that people are leaving unused opiates in their medicine cabinets um, or, you know, in, in some cases, kitchen cupboards or wherever, and they're saving it for a rainy day. They're saving it for that time that they don't have time to run in for that knee sprain or that ankle sprain or when they might need uh, uh, a painkiller, and they're accessing those unused um, prescriptions in their medicine cabinets. In the state of Minnesota, there were over three million prescriptions written, um, and in terms of, and that was in 2016. So think, you know, we're in 2018, so how many of those prescriptions are left unused And that's a big part of what we're doing here in Farm Bureau is that we're distributing, we received a grant through a partnership with Pharma, and we're we're working with a group called A-Plan to get the message out, let people know about resources available to them um, by using a website called farmtownstrong.org. Again, farmtownstrong.org. And also we're distributing um, Deterra drug kits um, we've given out about 5000 We have another $5,000 to um, safely dispose of prescription drugs that are in medicine cabinets. There are drop-off points, but not everybody has access to those drop-off points. Maybe those drop-offs are during certain hours and, or on certain days, and that opportunity to go in and dispose of those prescription drugs may not be available or work well for the rural farm family that may have unused prescriptions.
0: You know, you mentioned a little bit earlier the hidden nature of the problem, and I imagine that one of the aspects of that and one of the challenges is the stigma associated with it would probably make it somewhat difficult for some people to come forward and say that they need help. Uh, and, and I don't want to generalize too much, but I, I would certainly anticipate that that would also be the case with farmers. Is that what you find?
6: Absolutely. Um, and one of the things that was pointed out in this um, Research that we saw was that 68% of Americans and, and believe that increasing public relations, uh, which we're we're doing here at Farm Bureau, we're trying to make that uh, that public relations happen, that those conversations, but also reducing the shame and stigma are key to solving the opiate crisis. Um, you are not, you know, farmers by nature um, have a reputation of being uh, strong and resilient. And that perception sometimes has hurt us because while we want to maintain that, we're afraid of that stigma of walking in to um, a recovery center to walk into a doctor's office and oftentimes even saying to our loved ones, I have an addiction problem. So the more that we can talk about it, the more that we can reduce the the stigma, Um, it is an incredible disease that is really taking over and it's heartbreaking. Um, and if you look at the opiate uh, overdoses and kind of look at the numbers, uh, we have a growing problem. We are not going to Narcan. We are not going to arrest our way out of uh, this crisis that's happening in
7: our rural communities.
0: And for those in need of help, a good place to start is the Minnesota Farm and Rural Helpline. Callers can get help with financial assistance, mental health counselors, legal assistance, and more. The helpline is also available to people who are worried about family or friends and aren't sure how to help. The number to call is 833-600-2670. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. As hunters prepare for the upcoming firearms deer season, the DNR is reminding folks there will be mandatory chronic wasting disease testing in many areas of Minnesota. Tasha Radel has more on the mandatory sampling requirements.
8: Hunters in Central, North Central, and Southeast Minnesota need to bring their harvested deer to be tested for chronic wasting disease on opening weekend of firearms deer season, Saturday, November 3rd, and Sunday, November 4th. Joining me now to talk about CWD testing is Lou Cornicelli, Wildlife Research Manager with the DNR. Lou, let's dive right in. Can you kind of give us a rundown of what hunters can expect that weekend?
2: You bet. Um, Much like last year, we We have mandatory chronic wasting disease testing over opening weekend of the deer season, which is November 3rd and 4th, in select locations around the state. It's southeast Minnesota, central Minnesota, and north central Minnesota. Um, The best thing folks could do is get a look at our regulations book. All the details and the locations are in the book, or go to our website, uh, mndnr.gov slash CWD, but um, there's going to be a lot going on over opening weekend.
8: And can you tell us a little bit, I guess, for folks, I mean, I'm sure a lot of hunters are already aware, but uh, what does mandatory sampling really require? What, What do folks have to do?
2: Okay, what they have to do is first figure out if they're in one of our zones that we're testing, and then what you do is, after you harvest your deer, just register it like you normally would. Either go to a big game registration station, register it over the phone or on the internet, and then once you do that, you'll have to take the deer to one of our sampling stations. And again, you can find those online and in our regulations book. Once you get there, the process is fairly seamless. We've been doing it a long time. Uh, we'll take lymph nodes out of the deer, um, and you'll be able to look up your results in, in about a couple of weeks. Uh, so it's it's pretty easy to do. Uh, the folks that participated last year kind of know the drill. Uh, we had really high compliance in most of the states, so... I think folks will, you know, will comply. But uh, really, it's after you harvest your deer on opening weekend, on the same day, get it registered and into the into the sampling station, and we'll take care of it.
8: And the bottom line, this is uh, we're doing this is to to I guess minimize the spread or stop the spread uh, of CWD. Can you tell us a little bit about this disease?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a progressive neurological disease where research has shown in other states where the disease is established that it has long-term Im- negative impacts on deer populations. So the goal of, of all the states um, is preventative medicine. You basically want to find out if you have a disease and then do what you can either to eliminate it or stop the spread. Now, we're doing surveillance and monitoring and testing uh, for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, we have three captive cervid facilities that were, that were found positive over the last few years. And part of our response plan is to do intensive surveillance for three deer seasons to see if that disease has leaked out into the wild population. So we're entering year two in, a couple, in some of those places. Uh, the other surveillance and monitoring we're doing is in our CWD management zone, uh, Area 603. And in that area, uh, the surveillance is mandatory throughout the whole season. We have export restrictions, but our goal there is to... Um, is to basically limit the spread of the disease, or if we can do it, uh, eliminate the disease, which, of course, doesn't mean eliminating all the deer. We're not doing that, but just get a handle um, on this disease and do what we can so that future generations aren't wrestling with it.
8: Thanks again to my guest Lou Cornicelli, Wildlife Research Manager with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Again, for more information on the upcoming firearms deer season, you can head to the DNR's website at mndnr.gov. Back to you, Scott.
0: Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Who might
3: you save?
5: Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, and son.
3: Learn fast. F A S T. The sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save
5: your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach.
3: F face drooping. A arm weakness. S speech difficulty. T time to call 911. F A S T. Face arm speech time. That's F face drooping. A arm weakness. S speech difficulty. T time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of...
5: Your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather.
3: So learn FAST, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on, because you never know who might save you.
5: Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother...
3: Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Award-winning sports writer Patrick Borzy has penned a new book that Minnesota sports fans will undoubtedly enjoy. Minnesota Made Me features 38 well-known Minnesota sports figures and the stories behind what made them great. Famous Minnesota athletes like Larry Fitzgerald, Lindsey Whalen, Adam Thielen, John Schuster, and others are highlighted on the pages of the book. MN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with Patrick Borzy this week to talk about his new book, Minnesota Made Me. Well, Patrick,
4: let's uh, first of all start about the book. Just give us a little uh, synopsis on how the idea came about and uh, and the pursuit of uh, trying to track all these uh, great world-class athletes down.
7: Well, the, the book company actually approached me, and uh, when when they, they talked to me about the project, I was, uh, uh, it really intrigued me. You know, as you might be able to tell from the accent, I'm not from here. Uh, I'm originally from New York, um, but I've lived here for, for more than a decade, and I, and I thought it was uh, like a a lot of people who come to a new place you, you hear names and you you see people and you and you go, I didn't realize that person was from here. And I know we had we had so many athletes that are from Minnesota and and just uh, the whole point of this is to, all, all the ones that, that, were, that are either born or bred here and, and, or spent most of their, their lives here, what is it about being in Minnesota that shaped them as athletes and people? And I thought that that was a, a, a phenomenal topic. And it was interesting to talk to a lot of them because there, there are some common denominators, but there are also some that were just uh, 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 each one kind of had a, a unique take on the story, which I thought was pretty cool.
4: I was going to ask you, certainly every state has produced some world-class athletes, so I'm sure there are common threads amongst all world-class athletes sharing some of the traits. Did you find one or two specific traits that nearly most everyone you talked to shared from Minnesota?
7: Yeah, I found two things, actually. The first is that uh, the harsh winners, and I know they're not as harsh now as they used to be, but the harsh winners really kind of instilled a, a toughness in folks because uh, most of the people that I talked to uh, didn't just specialize in one sport. They played a lot of things, and so you're playing you're playing uh, you know football in some cold weather in November. You're playing hockey on ponds and you know throughout the winter. Uh, and there, were, there was kind of a kind of a pride in the toughness to be able to, to go out and, and do what you do in the elements that I don't find in a lot of places, and also the fact that that most of these folks played multiple sports. They uh, they didn't just play one thing, and there was also kind of a sense of pride in that, and that you you had some sort of balance in your uh, in your athletic lives that I uh, don't always find everywhere.
4: Um, did you have a favorite story or two? Uh, you have 38 athletes featured in the book. Was there one or two really unique ideas or stories that you heard that you can share with us?
7: Oh, yeah, there are plenty. I mean, we don't, we don't have enough time to go into my favorites, but I'll give you, I'll give you one. Uh, Tony Sander, the soccer player, when he was very young, I think age six, um, his mom sent him over to Africa to visit his father's relatives. And uh, when it came time to come home, The relatives cashed in his plane ticket because, uh, you know, the cost of living over there was much, much cheaper than over here. And a several hundred dollar, actually probably close to a thousand dollar plane ticket went a long way. And they did this several times. Uh, She kept sending another ticket over and they kept cashing the ticket. He ended up spending a little more than two years over there before, before he finally came home. And when he came home, he didn't know English anymore. So he had to completely relearn English and get reacclimated to America uh, while joining his class in third grade. Um, so it was really difficult, and he, he went into some depth about how playing soccer and, and being involved with his friends in soccer really helped him reacclimate to uh, uh, reacclimate re-ac- to the U.S. and uh, He's telling me the story in his office at the, this park in St. Paul, and I'm just mesmerized. I'd never heard anything like this before. And it, it gave me a whole new appreciation, not just for, for Tony as the athlete, but Tony as the person. Wow,
4: that is amazing. Who do you figure amongst the 38 folks that you have uh, profiled here is the most popular Minnesota athlete out of the book?
7: Uh, what's her name? I think she's the basketball coach <laughs> at the U now. Uh, Lindsay somebody. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no doubt Lindsay Whalen is, is at the moment the, the, the most, I would imagine, would, could win a popularity contest. I mean, if she's running for governor, she'd, she'd have a pretty good chance of winning.
4: <laughs> yeah, certainly as we're getting close to the holidays, it's a perfect time for Minnesota sports fans to, uh, to have this for, uh, you know, the coffee table uh, top and uh, certainly for uh, some conversation pieces. And um, uh, what, what was the most fun part about putting this all together for you?
7: Uh, just getting to meet uh, folks that I had never met before. I mean probably about half the people, maybe a little less than half the folks in the book are people that I had dealt with over the years. But uh meeting quite a few new people and hearing their stories and, and, and uh you know, Brianna Scurry is someone I'd never met and never talked to. But I but I obviously knew her story. Uh, and uh, I can remember watching the nineteen ninety nine World Cup uh in a bar somewhere when I was uh, when I was covering baseball, and, uh, and to kind of finally get to talk to her and, yeah. and to hear all the things that she went through as a kid and what she was able to uh, persevere through and accomplish, um, that was a lot of fun to hear all that stuff. And uh, there are several other folks. Uh, again, we'd be here for twenty five minutes to talk <laughs> about that. All all the all the different people and. Uh, um, listening to little nanny tell a bunch of stories just at uh, any time is a great thing yeah um and like i said there are plenty of others and and uh, i hope that uh i hope that folks who picked this up uh, have as much fun reading uh, reading the stories as i did writing
4: yeah it looks like a great book i think people will really enjoy it we appreciate your time thanks so much good luck
0: with your event next week to uh, kick it all off
7: mike thanks so much for your time take care
0: That's author Pat Borzi and MNN's Mike Grimm. The book is available to pre-order right now online with Amazon, Target, and Barnes & Noble. It hits bookshelves next week. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.